In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. For many of us, Labor Day is a day off. The last long exhale before September, school and work ramping back up, and soon enough, fall and winter. We don't think of it often enough for what it is, a chance to celebrate the labor movement and all of those hard-fought gains that led to things like, well, like long weekends. This year, there is a lot to celebrate for workers. We're in the middle of something of a labor renaissance. Wages are rising slowly but steadily, Heightened demand for workers has given many more flexibility in where and how they work and more options should they leave. And for the first time in a long while, unions are on the rise. Nowhere is that more visible than in the service industry and at one coffee shop in particular. That store was the first Starbucks in Canada to organize. It has not been the last. As the movement spreads from west to east, stores in Alberta are now unionizing, and it seems unlikely to end there. So why unionize a coffee shop? How is Starbucks responding? And what kind of fight is it bringing to the workers attempting to organize? And finally, why Starbucks? Why not McDonald's or Tim Hortons or whatever? And is that next? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jeremy Appel has been covering Starbucks unionization in his newsletter, The Orchard. He's also written about it for Jacobin. Hello, Jeremy. Hello. Uh, great to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm I'm hoping that before we get into uh, the rapidly growing, I guess, unionization movement in Canada, can you briefly outline for listeners how the Starbucks union drive in general came to be? It started in the U.S., right? The sort of, uh, I guess you could say the domino effect that we've been seeing began in the U.S., uh, namely Buffalo, towards the end of 2021. But actually, Canada's first unionized Starbucks voted in favor of certification in the summer of 2020 and then reached their first contract in the summer of 2021. That's in Victoria on uh, Vancouver Island. They expressed concerns that I think will become familiar as we talk about more of the other union drives about having to work during the pandemic, not having sufficient health and safety measures in place, a uh, customer base that at times could be very demanding and abusive. 
and uh, all these factors that I think are somewhat universal to the service industry, but also Starbucks. Let's zoom back for a second, because you mentioned that there's kind of been a domino effect and there was one in Victoria. There have been others in Canada. There are like how many now in the U.S.? Tell me, describe the domino effect. Well, so the drive-in Buffalo started in late 2021. That sort of energy that produced sort of spread to other locations in the States, Pittsburgh, Mesa, Arizona, and perhaps most notably Seattle, Washington, where Starbucks home base is, and also in Austin, Texas, which is more recently, which is of course not exactly union-friendly environment. The Buffalo Union Drive, so so or January 2022, I should say, when uh, Omicron was spraying throughout the U.S. and Canada at the Elmwood Avenue location, which was the first one in Buffalo, 10 of the 30 workers fell ill. And the workers who were still healthy just got fed up with the health risks that they had to endure. So they walked off the job. They had been expressing uh, concerns about working conditions prior to that. They just weren't being heard, right? So they wanted the company to give them uh, respirator masks. They wanted to develop enhanced protocols for what happens when you test positive for COVID and the ability to deny service to customers who refuse to abide by the county's mask mandate. But Starbucks was obstinate and they said that their uh, health and safety protocols were just fine and pointed out that theirs actually exceeded the standards of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention states, which standards which were, of course, uh, very low. And so they accused their workers of being high maintenance and demanding special treatment. And so that summer, this is 2021, not 2022. A worker named Jazz Bresak at the Buffalo location, who's a Rhodes Scholar from the University of Mississippi, there's a great profile on her and her colleagues in the Washington Post, sort of began laying the groundwork by approaching colleagues, looking at their social media profiles and seeing which ones may be more inclined towards unionization and sort of starting there. And it sort of snowballed from there. When we say snowballed, what do we mean? How many unionized Starbucks are there? That is a very good question in the United States. I would say almost 200. Oh, wow. That's in just over a year, I guess, since early 2021. Yes. Why are they all joining the United Steelworkers? And this is embarrassing to say. When I first saw in some of the reporting around this that it was USW, I thought that they had formed their own like United Starbucks Workers Union. You see in the States with you know another corporate giant whose workers are starting to unionize Amazon, they had uh, some degree of success on Long Island by creating their own Amazon union. But the, it, with Starbucks, they've decided to go with the established union. And, and and that's a very good question. I get that a lot when I when I write about this and I post about it on social media. People are like, why the United Steelworkers? Right. Now, the full name of United Steelworkers is United Steel Paper and Forestry, Rubber Manufacturing Energy Allied Industrial and Service Workers International Union. I did not know that. I didn't either, actually. My friend down in Lethbridge, which is having union, Starbucks union drive of its own, Kim Seaver, who's also an independent journalist, reported that recently. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Right. Particularly the service workers part. So the first Starbucks in Canada to unionize was in Victoria, and there have been a few others now. And we're going to get into the latest one. 
But first, just how has Starbucks handled this ongoing domino effect? How does it deal with the, I was going to call it a flood, but maybe it's not quite a flood yet, but it does, they do seem to be coming one after the other after the other. How do they cope with that? It's a very familiar pattern. And again, you see this with other corporate giants like Amazon. They they tell the workers, oh no, you have a right to unionize, but we don't think it's a good idea. We deal with our workers directly right, is what they say, right? They, I mean, Starbucks, they, they're, they're, they call their workers partners, right? They're part of a team together. You know, very typical union-busting rhetoric. In Buffalo, they brought in Howard Schultz, who wasn't quite the founder of Starbucks, but he, after he bought it, he sort of turned it into this massive international corporation that it is. They, they brought in the big guns. They brought him November 2021 before their vote. They brought him in to give them sort of a uh, pep talk before the ballots were sent out, telling them how we're all in this together. He actually provided a bizarre, offensive analogy, uh, telling a story about how during the Holocaust, there was a prisoner who had a blanket and they shared it with five other uh, people in the, the, the death camp that they were in. And he said that he thinks Starbucks like embodies that sentiment, which is, you know, for, for some reason that backfired, uh, you know, jury's still out on why, but yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so there are other tactics they use as well. Uh, there, there was a location in Calgary earlier this year at uh, the Chinook center, which is sort of the big mall here. In their food court, the Starbucks there tried to unionize, but what Starbucks did was they sort of went around interviewing workers about what they think of unions Wow! from around the city. And then those that were not favorably disposed, they sort of moved temporarily to that location so they could vote against the union drive. So sort of things like that, very... Uh, so. Explain the process. It's very passive aggressive. You know, one of the organizers at the successful drive explained it to me, right? It's like, look, we're all in this together. We want what's best for you. And here's why the union won't do that. And and there's fear mongering about, because Starbucks does offer its workers some benefits, right? Those that aren't unionized and they're, and, and they dangle them in front of the workers and they're like, you know, you could lose these if it's not in your first union contract, right? So uh, it's a very kind, gentle attempt at suppressing collective bargaining rights. So you mentioned uh, one Starbucks in Calgary. We talked about the first one in Victoria. How has it spread since Victoria across Canada? Uh, how many are in Canada right now that are unionized or planning to unionize? Up until very recently, like within the past few months, it was just the Victoria location and then the momentum from the U.S. unionizations, I think, spread across the border somewhat. It's still only been in Western Canada, though, right? So we had the, the Chinook Center Starbucks location. That drive failed. But then what happened was the government in British Columbia, which is a new Democrat government, they actually were elected in 2017 on a promise to introduce card check, right? Which, for your listeners who don't know is when organizers go around the workplace, they get a certain amount of workers to sign union cards, a certain percentage of the workforce. I believe it's 65% in BC, which is what it was in Alberta as well before the conservatives were elected in 2019 and got rid of that. And then you don't need a vote 
right? You, you're just automatically certified. And that is helpful for unions because it doesn't give employers the time to sort of organize against the union and sort of, you know, passively intimidate workers. So that resulted in the automatic certification of locations in Langley and Surrey, which are uh, suburbs of Vancouver. Then in Calgary, that became the first in Alberta. So it's sort of gradually spreading eastward. And I guess the latest one in Calgary is in uh, Jason Kenney's home riding. Is that correct? And and you spoke to those folks. Why are they doing this and how's that going? Mm-hmm. They did it. I mean, same reason all of them, you know, pandemic concerns surrounding health and safety. They also identified one that is more specific to their store. It's that the company would have these new items. They would promote them heavily and advertise for them, but they wouldn't give them enough supply, which would lead to uh, some conflict with customers. They also, you know, they were also concerned about the fact that they had to wear masks when there were COVID restrictions. Obviously now uh, many have just given up on it, but they had to wear masks, but the customers didn't, which means you're protecting the customers, but they have no obligation to protect you if they have COVID, right? Which they want fixed, in for future COVID waves or future pandemics, right? That that they're protecting both the customers and the employees. So in this instance, what the company did was they told the workers at the Millrise location, like as it stands right now with Starbucks, if you work at Starbucks and you move to another city, you can get a job at a location in that city, no problem, right? They, they can transfer you with ease. They were telling workers, like, who knows what will happen with that may not be in your first contract. Workers didn't buy that, right? Because that was, again, a hypothetical. And the one worker I spoke with, Jacob uh, Dickenshide, said that means it's just going to be a priority when they negotiate their first contract, which is currently underway, right? In Victoria, it took them about a year to get their first contract. In the meantime, the company has also, this is one of their more strong arm tactics, I think, that I've seen. They announced company-wide pay increase, sending out emails to like all uh, their workers across the country, but then they sent out another email specifically to the Victoria locations employees, which at the time was the only unionized store, telling them these don't apply to you because it's not in your contract. USW is challenging that because they said there is a clause in their contract that they can also negotiate other increases in benefits that aren't explicitly in the contract. I think that was a clear attempt to make an example of what at the time was the sole unionized store in the country to tell stores that were considering unionizing that this is what could happen to you. So this has mostly been a good news story and lots of positive movement on unionization, at least if you're if you're in favor of labor organizing. I guess my question is, what comes next? And, and this is a question both for the Starbucks side and for the unionization side. Like, do they continue to fight this battle uh, store by store by store across Canada and the U.S.? Or is there a tipping point somewhere where it's either in the best interests of 
Starbucks or the best interests of employees en masse to just, you know, all band together in the same one and deal with them as a true collective, right? That's the ultimate point of this unionization. Right. And I mean, there's still an uphill battle. I mean, uh, in in the States, for example, uh, Star in Ithaca, New York, that voted to unionize, the company shut down. You know, they closed down. In Memphis, Tennessee, they fired a bunch of workers for allowing a journalist into the store after hours to sort of report on their union drive. So, I mean, I, I, I do think these efforts become more widespread in terms of union organizing. The company will get more brazen and desperate in its union-busting tactics. And, you know, I, I think time will tell you know, whether that has an impact on the the, the union drives. I mean, um, you know, back in the 80s when Howard Schultz took over Starbucks, it was just a Seattle-based company with like a few locations and a roastery. They were all unionized. Schultz um, set out to crush those unions. Uh, one union organizer called in, in a piece in the New York Times uh, sort of detailing the history of this, that he came into the store and just screamed at her and told her to get out. Now, in his memoir, he presents sort of a softer face to these efforts, and he talks about how there was this one, this lone employee who just did their research and realized that, you know, it was better to work directly with the company than to have this adversarial relationship with a union. And that one person led this drive uh, to decertify the stores that were unionized. Now, the union organizers at the time suspect, and I think with good reason, that this person was didn't independently come to these conclusions. They were handpicked by Schultz and then, you know, sort of created this astroturf movement to decertify these stores. And over a span of, you know, five years, they all got decertified. And then that was it until the mid-2000s. There was another effort by the industrial workers of the world, the Wobblies, and that was also not successful. So, I mean, there's no denying that this is an uphill battle. At this point in Canada, why Starbucks, do you think, as opposed to any number of other chains that employ uh, thousands of service workers. You know, in Canada, why not Tim Hortons? Why not McDonald's? What do you think is it about this coffee company? I think the ubiquity of Starbucks is one factor. But of course, as you mentioned, in Canada, Tim Hortons is uh, just as ubiquitous, if not more. I think that perhaps the contrast between the workers who go into work every day and the sort of wealthier customer base at, at, at Starbucks rather than McDonald's or Tim Hortons where, um, you know, I, I don't think customers are as demanding. I think that may play a role. Just these workers are going into work every day and they have these rich people buying these expensive drinks. Like all these other service economy companies, inequality between the billions these companies are worth and the millions their CEOs are taking home and the low wages the workers are making is itself a motivating factor. But I think when you add in customer base that can be especially demanding and is, you know, tends to be more well off, I think that is an additional motivating factor. Jeremy, thank you so much for this. It's a great look inside what's going on. Oh, no problem. Uh, always a pleasure. Jeremy Appel writing in Jacobin. 
That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. If you haven't taken the survey yet, it's right there at the top of the page. Just click it, please. You can also find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us, hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. And you can leave us a voicemail. Get it all out. 416-935-5935. Happy Labor Day. Thank your nearest union. And we'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.